It's that time for a good old natter with Dan Parker. Thank you, Peter. Yes, hello, 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 and welcome to the very first episode of A Good Old Natter, my brand new podcast series hosted by moi, Dan Parker. This podcast is exactly what it says on the tin. In each episode, I'll be meeting and chatting with special guests about all sorts, their life, their career, random and quirky hobbies they may have, absolutely anything really. In these strange times that we're currently living in, I know that now more than ever, the art of conversation and having some company is just so important. So I wanted to bring you a podcast, which hopefully makes you smile, but perhaps you can also take some inspiration from too, whether that be by listening on your morning commute or hearing my dulcet Essex tones of an evening before you go to sleep. All my life, I've been someone who just loves hearing people's stories and also telling stories too. I guess I've also been known as a bit of a chatterbox too. So now I want to do what I do best in podcast form, having a good old natter. In this first episode of A Good Old Natter, I headed backstage at the Good Morning Britain studios to meet Richard Arnold, entertainment and showbiz presenter, former Strictly contestant, and just all-round nice guy. Richard talked to me about his childhood, his career in television, and a certain rather quirky collection that he has in his possession. So let's head backstage to Richard's Good Morning Britain dressing room. I hope you enjoy. So, Richard Arnold, a very warm welcome to A Good Old Natter. How are you doing? I'm very good, sir, and welcome once again to Television Centre. Here we are on the hallowed turf at formerly the BBC, of course, but now home to ITV Daytime. And it's been our home now for, I think, about a year and a half. It's sort of flown by, really. It's gone quick, hasn't it? It has gone quick. I, I, I know that there's still an excitement coming to this building every day because, as a kid growing up, this was the building that was the home of television, you know, when you watched all those television shows of your everything from Blue Peter to The Generation Game. So there is very much a sense when you you come through these doors, which I'm lucky enough to do at the moment, sort of every day, um, that you're sort of part of a, a, a small part, I have to say, but nevertheless, a small part of, of the history of this uh, building. I've yet to hear any ghostly echoes of a bark from Shep, um, but I believe the studio we're in at the moment uh, they actually filmed Monty Python in, along with so many other shows. A lot of the cameramen are, uh, are prone to that, that sort of, how can I put it, not level of geekiness, but, um, you know, they're, they're very much across it because, like myself, they, they love the history of this building. So I did, I did Strictly here um, eight years ago, 2012, and it was the last time that Strictly came out of this building because obviously it was being decommissioned, if you like, before it was turned into the studios that we have now, rebooted and revamped for the next generation, if you like. And uh, yeah, that was quite something because it was sort of Studio One, if you like, or whatever, you know, like the, the main studio and uh, Bruce Forsyth was, would be doing his warm-ups and you'd be aware that obviously he'd trodden these boards many many a time before along with all the greats and I would just sort of sit listening to him warming up the audience as the uh, the band were, were getting ready as well and warming up and I was thinking oh my goodness me this is this is the heart of it all isn't it this is this is shiny floor entertainment at its greatest and I remember um, Lisa Riley Mandy Dingle herself Mandy Dingle herself was part of the lineup that year and we were so giddy that there were sort of huge pictures of us outside the BBC and I still have all the pictures of us sort of running around like kids you know <laughs> having pictures taken um, with them so yeah a lot, a lot of great memories 
Um, I think actually, do you know, the first time I came to this building was to interview Hanson, you know, the boy band. Umbop. Umbop, indeed. And it was indeed around the Umbop era. It would have been around 97, I think. And I came in here to interview them. They must have been doing a show here. Um, so, yeah, I've been in and out of this building, I suppose, um, for many, many years. But now, as I say, it is the home of ITV Daytime. So it, it, it's quite lovely pulling up here every morning, uh, albeit at the crack of a sparrow's cough in the middle of the night and, uh, and, and, and cracking on. And uh, it, yes, it's, it, it's great. It's great to be here. Well, that was a very, very long-winded way of me welcoming you to the building. No, no, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And like you say, as soon as you walk through the doors of this building, you feel the history. Yeah, you really do. You really do. And uh, I think that, I think it's a free song, a little buzz that, that um, all of us enjoy uh, when we come here. We were on the South Bank for many, many years uh, and I know that, that that's a building that obviously holds a lot of fond memories for me too, because I first walked through those doors, um, ITV of old, um, back in January 1997. So I've been a fixture on and off on the breakfast television sofa for about 23 years, 22, 23 years. So, yeah. Man and boy, as and they, they haven't say. aged. <laughs> haven't aged at all. I can give you the number. Uh, well, that's very kind of you. I believe I have. But in fact, when I look back at my first appearance, which we we featured on the show a couple of times recently, because 2020 marked the 25th anniversary of of me on on network television when I did a show um, up in Manchester um, called the Sunday Show, which was a youth program on a Sunday, of course. That was on BBC Two. Um, so they flagged up footage of me of yesteryear for that reason alone and also to celebrate my 50th birthday, which was a year ago. And when I look back at um, myself, well, let's put it this way, balloons don't have wrinkles and I was a bit blousier then and I had frosted tips very much uh, in the Gary Barlow vein of old. I suppose Gary and I with the best will in the world were, were kind of the doughy members <laughs> of, of the showbiz fraternity back then but I'd like to think that both Gary and I have blossomed I was going to say another man that hasn't aged yeah absolutely yeah so uh, yeah if, 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 we're, if we're cut of the same cloth <laughs> albeit slightly smaller than of old I'll take it but I do remember the frosted tips and I do remember my first appearance back then was with uh, uh, Penny Smith and, and a presenter called Matt Lorenzo uh, and that was my debut, if you like, on the mm. sofa. So that's extraordinary to think that that's almost a quarter of a century ago that, that it all sort of started. Because it was, of course, I think when I can first remember seeing you was on GMTV, mm. where you had Eamon with his dark black hair back then and yes. Fiona and, as you said, Penny, etc. You've obviously seen the transition from GMTV to Daybreak to what is now GMB. I want to ask you, from your point of view, how have you seen the early morning breakfast show evolve I guess well the narrative has changed hugely now I mean Good Morning Britain sort of sets the agenda um, and out clearly thanks to Piers and Susanna and, and the rest of the team isn't afraid to sit on the fence anymore and I think it very much represents the audience that are tuning in and ask the questions that they want to hear the answers to and of course back in the day uh, GMTV did the same, but it was a much cuddlier world then. It was all about, um, I mean, aside from the fact, clearly there were there were still issues then, but it wasn't really an issue-led show. It was sort of wheelie bins, Steve McDonald, what was on the television that night, and with a smattering of weather. One thing I will say that it hasn't changed at all, um, or rather I would, even though I am hesitating, I don't hesitate to say it, um, because I think comparison between GMTV when it was in its heyday when I first joined was a huge success because 
those of us who were front of house, we were sort of a very much a representative of a dysfunctional family, if you like. And I think that's what uh, GMB has nailed now and has got right. There really is something for everyone on it because we're all our own characters. We're all allowed to be ourselves, um, some more than others. But, you know, we are allowed to open the book a lot further now. And I think that's great. I, th I think that's that's what people and it's reflected in the ratings. That's what people enjoy when they watch it um, because it's real. It's not, for example, I think when Daybreak started, it was very much, I know that they were looking for change and they wanted to give um, GMTV a shot in the arm. And of course they ended up clearing house mostly. And I, I felt with Daybreak as a product, it was a show that people felt the people at home should be watching as opposed to being a show that um, reflected the audience that was actually tuning in. And I think that's what Good Morning Britain has done now and I think that that was very much the success of GMTV when it was at its peak as well. So yes, I am long in tooth. I've seen many an arc. I've come and gone, but it's been quite, I don't want to use the word journey, but it has been quite an arc sitting there and watching the various narratives of morning television and how it changes over the years. It's been quite interesting being part of it, but also being very much sort of in the wings as well a bit and being a spectator. Certainly as someone who loves telly, and I've always loved live telly. And of course, live telly uh, is a lifeline now, rather like the soap operas in the, in the current state of the nation in the world that we're living in at the moment. You know, it's crucial to have those lifelines, I think. And I think that's why daytime, not just Good Morning Britain, but across the board on ITV is doing so well. And what did you watch growing up? What TV did you enjoy? Who oh. heroes? <laughs> TV growing up, oh mate. If you tug on that thread, we'll be here all day. What a tapestry that was. I mean, I was very much a child of the 80s in the sense that I moved up to um, Inverurie in Aberdeenshire. My father was a helicopter engineer for Bristow's Helicopters. And so when I was about 11 or 12, we moved up from Hampshire. Um, Dad was a Londoner. Mum was a Hampshire lass. They met. I came along in year 13. Do the maths. Unlucky for some or not. Rather late in their marriage. And um, spent my first part of my life as I say in Hampshire but then we moved up to Scotland and at that time the television that I was fascinated by all the US imports um, it's no secret um, to anyone who's followed my career or um, met me over the years that, that Dallas was a massive show for me so moving up to oil rich Aberdeenshire wasn't quite Texas but nevertheless it resonated with a young lad who sort of pinned his hopes um, you know, and ambitions on, you know, going to the States. It was all the glamour of it all back then, wasn't it? But I mean, and it wasn't just like Dallas and, and, and the big soaps. It was like Magnum, the A-team. I remember sitting down to record Heart to Heart. And it must have been about 1982, because I remember it was the first time that we got what we called back then a VCR. And I remember recording an episode of Heart to Heart and turning around to my parents who were sat on the sofa and telling them to be quiet, shh just in case it came out on the tape. I know that makes me sound a bit Amish, but um, <laughs> such was the technology back then. Uh, so I loved all of those very, very glossy American imports that, that were quite the fashion then, weren't they? You know, I suppose it's hard to imagine now American television imports being huge on prime time, but they really were. We did stop for Dallas. We did stop for Dynasty, you know. Uh, that's what we did back then because you all had to stay in and watch it otherwise you'd miss it which is why the shows were so huge but yeah they were very much my my shows uh, back then aside from being weaned as well on 
Uh, great British comedy. My dad and I, we were huge fans of the two Ronnies. We'd sit and watch Dave Allen. I'm sure you may remember Dave him. Allen. Dave Allen. I mean, just smoking away, drinking whiskey. Um, you just wouldn't get that now, would you? You, you just wouldn't get that now, uh, indeed. So the times, of course, back then would be very much out of joint with what we see now. But it was those sort of classics that, that I would get into. And I remember when um, Wogan, how could I not mention Wogan? Because he's actually the reason, I suppose, um, alongside someone like Kenny Everett, who was hugely irreverent back then, Wogan, for me, sort of set the standard. And, you know, I, I was speaking to Gary Roslin the other day, um, no showbiz clang there at all. Our paths have crossed many times. And I admitted to her that I'd never met Wogan. Now, of course, at the time, back in the 80s, he had a thrice weekly chat show, which was just fantastic tea time fodder. He always had the best stars on there as well, particularly when they were on hiatus from filming in he the He was States. like the Graham Norton oh, now, isn't he? Absolutely. I mean, just, just phenomenal, just huge. As my mum said when he passed away, she said, but he was the voice rich. And I remember him being obviously on the radio. I, I, in fact, when I think of his voice for the first time I heard it, or that I can recollect. I remember him saying that Elvis had passed away. So this would have been about 1977. And I remember looking up at the counter. So that, that's one of my earliest memories of hearing his voice. So he was just a legend for me. And I said to Gabby, I said, you know, I never actually got to meet him. And I, I've met everyone in this business because of my remit, you know, of interviewing people. And my paths have crossed with everybody. But I never got to meet him. Uh, the irony was I happened to be in the restaurant that he held his leaving do at from Radio 2 many years ago. And I still couldn't work up the courage to sort of introduce myself, you know? Uh, but yeah, he for me, he was the legend. He, he was the absolute icon. And, and even though I didn't realise or have any ambition to get into broadcasting any way, shape or form, he was the, the, the template for me. He set the bar, if you like. You know, I, 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 there was no one like him as far as I was concerned. I just know up the road from here at TV Centre, there's a, a pizza restaurant, which his son owns. I'm sure you know that already, but have you crossed paths with Rogan <laughs> Jr.? No, I haven't, actually. <laughs> no, probably because by the time I leave Television Centre, um, it's about nine o'clock in the morning. And, and even though I've been up for quite a few hours, I'm not really in the mood for a deep crust, yeah. <laughs> if I'm brutally frank. It's not um, quite marmalade on toast, is no, it? No, not quite. Not quite. No, I, yeah, I'm very much a, 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 yeah, a, a wartime scraping of marmite and a slice of toast in the morning, yeah. And you spoke about growing up in Scotland. Your childhood in general, was it a happy one? Oh, yeah. It was great. It was fantastic. I'm an only child, which uh, I suppose as you get older, it's not without its jeopardy. I, my mum, I'm lucky, lives close and is very robust, so I can see her a lot. I moved her up to London after my father passed away a few years ago, about four years ago. And we were very close. It was very much the three of us. Uh, but mum and dad were very keen as well, being the only child, that um, I wasn't tied in any way, shape or form to an apron string. So I left home roughly, must have been 16, 17, um, and never really looked back, which I suppose must have been bittersweet for them in many respects, because whilst we always saw each other and, and had a close relationship, when I left home, that was it. I, I was done. So they encouraged that form of independence. Uh, but yeah, growing up, mate, was fantastic. When I was in Hampshire um, and up in Scotland as well. I, I loved it in Scotland. I mean, it took about a year and a half or so for me to sort of bed in because... I turned up, you know, speaking like I do, and, and Aberdeen, obviously, completely different kettle of fish. And also, back then, well, I remember when the family waved us goodbye onto an inter Intercity 125, first time I'd been on a Rattler um, on such a journey. And, um, 
you'd think we'd sort of move to Siberia in many respects. You know, we were given the sort of send off that would be normally reserved for people going off, God forbid, into action or something, you know. But of course, this was 1982. It was a very, very different world. And, and we didn't have the technology to keep in touch that we did um, back then. It, we had things like party lines on the phone, etc. cetera. Uh, but yeah, absolutely no regrets there at all. I, I had a great time um, growing up. As I said, it took me a while to sort of break myself into the way of life in Aberdeenshire and, and making friends. But once I did, that was it. And I absolutely loved it. I, I, and I even managed to find my feet at the local young farmers discos, which is which is no mean feat for someone like myself, who should really technically be, as an Englishman, Morris dancing. Uh, but I still managed to um, make myself known um, <laughs> at the young farmers discos. We did yeah. Strictly instead, so that's... that's well, yeah, place. yeah, yeah, I suppose, yeah. I, I'm not sure whether they stood me in good stead, <laughs> you know, uh, sitting on the the side of a dance floor in rural Aberdeenshire listening to Phyllis Nelson's Move Closer in a stay-pressed slack and a tank top. I'm not sure whether that prepared me for the glitter and spangle of primetime television and for getting my foxtrot in front of 12 million people. But nevertheless, yes, you're right. I, I, I did manage to put one foot in front of the other, but I don't think it would count as professional training. But yeah, to answer your question, it, it's interesting, isn't it? As you get older, um, and certainly when you reach certain milestones, 30, 40, 50, if you're lucky, you, you look back and you sort of audit your life in in, in many respects and you do draw dividends and count your blessings increasingly because obviously no one is promised tomorrow as we know only too well so you do look back and I, I think yeah yeah that it, it was a good time I laughed a lot laughed a lot I, I, I do remember that much and and despite being an only child I or rather because of being an only child I guess I I built bridges my friends became my family if you like so I know that probably sounds like a cliche, but it's a fact. And I was very outgoing and, and, and quite gregarious and um, much like I am now, some might say irritant, but nevertheless um, found a way to pad my part, albeit in what at the time was a very alien world from, from the one I was brought up in. Not very alien, but, you know, very different. But I think youngsters um, are, are very resilient. I, th I think, um, you know, we find our way, don't we? Because we know no different. And, and that's the kind of resilience... I hope that this current generation will have because, of course, we know only too keenly the slings and arrows that they're facing at the moment that they're up against, whether it, whether it's to do with dashed finances or academic prospects or just dreams in general. You know, I hope that they I don't think it's for us to say to that generation that, oh, well, that's the lost generation then, because I think we do them a massive disservice. Um, I believe that life whatever age in fact but life will find a way and I believe that we are very resilient you know from knee high onwards we, we find our way I've got to ask you of course here backstage at GMB in your dressing room where mm. I know your lovable dog Clemmy can often yes. be found how did Clemmy come into your life and just how much does Clemmy mean to you oh right well, I, I never had a pet growing up. So there's me saying I had the most idyllic childhood. I think the one regret I do have um, is that I never got a dog sooner. So I moved to a house which had a garden and that was about five, well, about seven or eight years ago. And, and so the time was right, really, to get a pooch. And so looked into it thoroughly. I had this vision of perhaps having two corgis so that I could sort of walk down the steps outside the front of my gaff and I'd look like the Queen getting off an old BOAC jet um, as she used to, because she used to obviously fly into Aberdeen to go down to Balmoral and we'd always see that because Aberdeen shows. There is a connection to be fair. There is a connection to be fair, yes. It's not just me being some camp old turn who fancies himself in tweeds and a headscarf with two corgis nipping at his heels. But speaking of nipping apparently, and this is, um, I don't want to throw shade on corgis, I may be barking up the wrong tree every pun intended but uh, they can be a little bit nippy and we had godchildren at the time we were quite young and cockapoo just seemed like 
the ideal breed because I, I'm a, a big fan of sort of literature about Churchill and uh, the royal family in that particular era, if you like. So you, you imagine the crown is never off my telly. And he had poodles, obviously associated with the bulldog though he is. Poodles were his, his breed. So a cockapoo seemed like a, a great way to move forward. Cuddly, energetic, intelligent. And that is why Clemmy is called Clemmy, because she's named after Winston Churchill's wife. And I figured if I'm going to name a dog after a long-suffering companion, and let's face it, that dog putting up with me would have to be long-suffering, then Clemmy was the right name. But yeah, Clemmy, I mean, she came in and out of the studio. She can't come into the studio at the moment because of the current um, situation. Mm. But um, up until very recently, March, in fact, she'd be in most days uh, whenever I was invited in. So I know everyone misses her. Funny you should mention it, because people were talking about it today, because having a dog around... um, can be a great leveller because I think people generally behave better around uh, dogs than they do people. Again, that's another sweeping generalisation, but I think, you know, there's empirical evidence to support it. Uh, and I just see the soothing effect she has, particularly with guests who, who've, who've been through some kind of trauma and mm. they've come in to talk about it. This is obviously all pre-COVID and pre-Zoom when we used to have um, guests in which already seems like a lifetime ago, to be honest. Mm. But she's met all the stars. She's been snapped with all the stars. And also I had to pick a dog that was um, hypoallergenic uh, so that I could bring her to work. And cockapoos, first generation cockapoos, are hypoallergenic. So it meant I could bring her in. And the first time that she met an A-lister, I brought her into, we were at the old studios on the South Bank, and I brought her in and... um, Rennie Zellweger was in and she was shadowing Kate Garraway and, 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 and the team because she was researching the latest outing for her, her Bridget incarnation, if you like, for the next Bridget Jones film. And we were sort of briefed to not make a fuss, you know, and just to be polite and not sort of acknowledge it because I think, you know, for purposes of the research, she wanted to, Renee wanted to sort of slip into the background in the gallery and all that sort of thing. Anyway, she came into makeup and I had Clemmy as a puppy you know, so this is about five years ago, sat on my knees and Rennie was, you know, Rene, 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 yeah, Rene, was drawn immediately to the puppy because let's face it, puppies are magnets. And um, she started sort of um, massaging Clemmy's puppy gums, you know, and I thought, well, where do I go here? Do I acknowledge that Rene is, you know, massaging the gums of my nearest and dearest? Um, <laughs> so the, the invitation to not thanks, much you can do, really, not, is not, 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 not much can do. Even I was somewhat neutered so I, but it led to great banter. And funnily enough, one of the last red carpets I did was the BAFTAs this year. And when you think about it, it's probably the last time mm-hmm. that anyone pressed the flesh on a red carpet. And Rennie was there and she, you know, she always, she's always good for a wave and a chat. Wow, how things have changed, actually. We've rolled up those red carpets for quite some time. A lifetime ago. Yeah, it does. It really does feel like a lifetime ago, as I'm sure it does for many in whatever sort of world you're, you're working in at the moment. But uh, yeah, so that, that was Clemmy's first... Um, first moment of pressing the flesh if you like with an a-lister so she has the longest shot of it is she's met them all what would i be without i don't know to be honest mate in terms of just just going out for a walk with her i mean she's been an absolute godsend during um lockdown and the ensuing months and even before then like if you had something on your mind you'd step out you'd I'd, i'd walk her religiously twice a day and within sort of 20 minutes of being out and about you'd forget your worries, you know. I mean, she's been an absolute godsend and she's kept me trim. So no more Gary Barlow of old. 
I've always said the benefits of a dog always outweigh the price tag of a dog. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And as I say, my, my if, if one of my few regrets is I ripen into the third and final act of my life in the full thrust of middle youth is the fact that I didn't have a dog when I was younger, then um, I'm a lucky, lucky man. But yeah, she's been a great blessing. You touched on it earlier about the weird times we're facing right now mm -hmm. and how dogs can be quite therapeutic. Many would say, of course, you're in a job which they would say is perfectly suited, I guess, for an extrovert. You know, you're covering high-profile events, you're meeting high-profile people, as you've said. How has lockdown been for you, both personally and professionally? Personally, obviously, like everyone else, uh, because we didn't know what we were up against when it started, very anxious, needed to get mum locked down and, and, and tidy and tucked away safely. I was lucky enough to still be able to work from home. So as soon as I sort of, as soon as that, um, narrative formed and that pattern formed the anxiety um, the collective anxiety if you like that we all had because I'd be in touch with friends every day via FaceTime or, or Zoom or whatever there was very much a feeling obviously that we were all in it together and that you drew a tremendous amount of comfort from that I, I, I would get in touch with a lot of my producers who were working remotely or a lot of the team I should say who were working remotely who I knew lived on their own and always make a point of talking to them because I think that contact was hugely hugely important now that we're sort of blinking into the the bleak midwinter and and reconciling ourselves with the fact that obviously this isn't going away and how not just our industry has changed but the world has changed I think like many people we're still in the process of processing it because summer if you were lucky enough to be healthy and you were under lock and key summer always takes on a life of its own anyway because you know invariably people are either off doing their own thing whereas when you get to winter particularly in my business I suppose rather like the academic year that starts in September there are dates in your diary GQ awards TV quick awards or TV uh, choice awards I should say that that ages me because I, I used to do a lot of work for them then. but you know all those sort of um events that would um, pepper your diary charity balls crucially as well that you'd host and uh, carol concerts for example that you'd be reading at it and singing at remember the days so it's been weird to sort of stare toward christmas and have a completely empty not just an empty diary as such because that probably sounds deeply superficial but just to have all of those events that you would normally have as part of your not just working life but your um private life as well all of it wiped out which of course we're all experiencing but that's that's been quite weird because normally this is the busiest time of the year when i think back to this time last year i was i'd just come back from a press trip to dallas fort worth i was about to interview celine dion in new york and i'd been offered the role of the grinch in really in the, in the christmas special for strictly <laughs> Um, so all you can imagine how busy you know that, that that was and of course all of that's gone now but I am incredibly incredibly lucky to have somewhere to go most days and work and obviously I write and radio and case in point you keeping me company today backstage podcasting yeah th this sort of connection is hugely important that that's the key for me is connecting with everyone which is why I said to you I kept in touch with my team even when we had nothing to talk about because covid was the only story so there were no showbiz stories on the show um, but we did have some highlights having said that during lockdown because my garden became an extension of the good morning britain set so I hosted a virtual glastonbury there and 
the thing about virtual means almost and really no nothing mud. like yeah no mud well that's because the, the the grass in my garden thank you for asking is plastic I could roll it up that's and chuck it away <laughs> which is actually a relief yeah um, so I, I did Eurovision from there I did Pride from there and as I say I did Glastonbury from there so yeah, the sort of green shoots were starting to come through when when the nation I think was ready to sort of we we have to we have to learn with to the best of our ability to laugh again and and not just be defined by this insidious virus which of course has had such a massive impact on everybody's life whether you've been at the front of the engine or whether like I think a lot of people as well where, where you're not so much an essential worker as you almost feel sort of irrelevant I think many people struggle to find their role within the pandemic because their sort of identity if you like which is so tied up in our work and our whatever we do had sort of been wiped out overnight so it's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, it's constantly evolving. I think we've all got used to the fact as well that um, it can change not just once a week, every day, but on the hour, every hour. You know, when you hear that chime of a news alert on your phone, there comes a point where you've got to just park it and distance it because, you know, there's only so much of the grey matter around to process it all. It's, I think it's been very overwhelming for so many people. I guess people looking in from the outside, the viewers, let's say, mm. would look what you guys do in television as... It'd be easy for them to think of it all as glitz and glamour. But can you talk to me a bit about the pressures these sort of jobs can actually bring and just how much hard work goes into it? Because I guess it, it must naturally just be very full on. I um, it's weird because I've been doing it for so long that... What sort of analogy can I draw here? You know, I suppose if you when you're piloting an aircraft, you, you earn your wings, don't you? The more miles you have in the sky... And your stripes you and all that. You you do, yeah. And so, it, if you put that question to a twenty five year old me, it would be a different response to the the answer that I can give you today. And like any job, I suppose, um, it, you know, it's not without its jeopardy. Um, I still get a flutter every now and then, a bit of a buzz before going on. I never get complacent. I still get giddy, actually. I was going to say nerves. Nerves come into it ever. Well, no, no, yeah, I, well. Do nerves come into it? I, I I wouldn't describe it as nerves. Certainly when your dress is the Grinch about to <laughs> assume a position on the dance floor again when you've already parked the Strictly experience behind you eight years before. And I remember just before I, just to paint a picture for you, I was head to toe in green fur and a green lycra underneath to protect one's modesty and not to offend the finer sensibilities of people tuning in on Christmas Day to see the Strictly Christmas special. I remember being on the dance floor, because when you get the call to return to Strictly, of course you do it again. And I absolutely loved my time on the show, but it was so nerve-wracking. And I remember standing there about to dive down this chimney um, onto the dance floor. And I remember saying under my breath, oh, Dad, dear Dad, what am I doing? Why am I putting myself through this? And then the minute you go down the chimney and you're on it, you're, you're loving it, right? You get out there and do it. But yeah, there are moments like that when you're totally out of your comfort zone. But even the other day, for example, I interviewed Sir Cliff Richard and it was the first face-to-face -face interview I'd had in months. And obviously it was all done within the realms of the current um, COVID restrictions, etc. And I was, I've, I've met Sir Cliff many times and interviewed him a handful of times at least. And, and, but it, I was so giddy to once again be face to face with someone and doing my job. Um, so I don't lose the excitement. I still get the odd flutter before going on. And there is absolutely nothing like live television. And when I think about it, aside from various quiz shows I've done and other pre-recorded stuff like The Apprentice, which was a, a couple of years ago, or, or, or MasterChef or any of those shows, there is nothing like live. Even when you're doing something like streaming. You still get that buzz every day. Yeah. 
yeah, I do. I really love it. I really love it. In fact, I miss that very much. I miss. I, I missed. I, I, it was less to do with missing the job, but actually, and I'm sure many people feel like this, who, whose lives have been thrown out of joint by this, this whole pandemic, is that I missed the crew, the makeup um, team have only just come back, really, obviously, because that had to all be cleared. And I, I was part of their WhatsApp group during the whole um, pandemic, because, I, like, again, I thought it was so important to connect, to keep, because we're not just show-and-go people. We We see each other every day and we ergo become part of each other's lives and 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 routines and i think when everything is so up in the air people cling to those sort of uh, moments you know that that routine some any kind of structure we can cling on to just to keep as i say keep the old gray matter ticking over and just to, to feel tethered in in what increasingly feels like a world that's completely spun off its axis certainly one that we recognize anyway Throughout your career, you've obviously interviewed A-listers left, right and centre, whether it be Celine, Elton John, Spice Girls in their heyday. I'm not going to ask you which was your favourite, but I want to ask you which interview you've done that you'd say you're most proud of. That's a really good question. Interview that I'm most proud of. I think, for me, it would be interviewing Tony Bennett in his apartment overlooking Central Park in New York. And I remember my father thought I'd won the World Cup when I'd finally met uh, Tony, albeit an extended um, part of the Rat Pack family, if you like. And speaking of which, when you went into his apartment, there were pictures of him and Sinatra, and there were a couple of presidents on the piano, obviously not literally, but you know, him with the greats and stuff. And I, that that was quite a moment. That, that was an extraordinary moment. And I've, I've been lucky enough to interview him three times now. But yeah. Uh, that that yeah I do remember sort of taking a breath with that and standing there because you were standing alongside um and I would have been 80 I think at the time or thereabouts anyway and uh you were just there with a, a living legend you know so that that was that was quite something I think that would probably be yeah my standout standout one and I guess would there be one that you'd say is the most daunting daunting would it be that one no, I think it would probably be, in terms of daunting, um, I think, it, I suppose, it, in terms of someone perhaps having a reputation that precedes them, it would have been Barbara Streisand. Or as she said to me, it's Streisand. Because British people always say Streisand. Because quite often it's her Streisand. first name people get wrong, isn't it? Yeah, of course, because it's spelt B-A-R-B-R-A, right? Thank goodness I got that right on the night. <laughs> anyway, so I went in to see Barbara again. This was a, again in New York. It was a very hot September. I do remember that much. And uh, I was not so much nervous because, of course, she's renowned for being a perfectionist and, and likes to get things um, bang on first time. It's someone I'd always wanted to meet as well. So, they, you know, you don't want it to be a case of I'll never meet your heroes, if you like. Anyway, I went into the room, heavily lit. She was already in position. I sat down. We started the chat. And, uh, and then about halfway through the chat, she said, can we just stop for a second? And I was like, oh blimey this could go either way and she picked up a tissue and she leant forward and she dabbed my top lip because it was so hot in that room I'd started to bead and all she said to me was we got to take care of each other right that and I such thought, a nice story it's a lovely story I felt like I've been anointed by Barbara <laughs> um and, and and you know a case in point I suppose it feeds into that reputation that as I said preceded her she's such a perfectionist she that she didn't even though she was the turn in the subject of the interview she didn't want to feel that she'd let a fellow turn down by allowing me to go or continue on camera like looking like I was sweating like a glass blower's bottom I kind of feel like Kleenex need that as the next dad you and just Barbara Streisand I mean padded by Barbara I know padded by Barbara 
Vanessa Redgrave did my makeup once in Cannes as well, randomly. You've, you've opened something up here. I remember <laughs> she took some powder to me as well in Cannes. I know the bottom line is I tend to sweat a lot on the job. I can assure you it's not nerves. It must be the excitement. And absolutely nothing, nothing to do with the martini I generally have beforehand. <laughs> I save that for the post-coital experience, if you like. After the chat. With all these people that you've met, someone you, of course, work with regularly is, of course, Piers Morgan. Yes. I have to ask about Piers because is he off air just what he's like on it does he sort of dish out the banter away from the cameras as well he's you know he, as I always say to him you'd have a fight in an empty room you really would with yourself um, he, he's been uh, he's formidable he brings the sort of bombast to the show which is um, completely changed I think breakfast television and we've known each other of old anyway because our paths have crossed many times for example when he was on BGT and all that sort of caper so I can tell you that um, privately he, he was very concerned about my mum during and, and still is during this current pandemic when he was on air and had his hand on the tiller with Susanna while the rest of us were sort of working from home. He took the time to email and ask how mum was and said, is there anything I can do? Uh, so that he would hate it because that sort of damages his brand. Um, but I tell you what the great thing about it is, and I said to you, I love live telly is even if you can't get a word in edgeways, every time you come in here and he's on, it's certainly compelling viewing. Even if you've had your makeup done and you're sat in a corner and you can't actually chip in a verse, but it's never dull. As obviously you can tell when you tune in, the energy is quite something. It brings in the viewers as well. It brings in the punters. And I think, he, you know, people genuinely know that we get on, you know? And as I always say, you know, a rising tide floats every boat and, you know, we're all aboard at the moment and it's going well. So um, long may that continue because that's a credit to everyone um, behind the scenes as well. I mean, can you imagine navigating, um, even though the team is used to negotiating live news and the ever-changing events of the world on a daily basis to, to have, I hate the word unprecedented, I never want to hear it again, but to be in these unprecedented times. The team behind the scenes have done a cracking job. I mean, I'm in absolute awe of them. You know, I've been in the gallery when they have been covering breaking news, whether it be um, a terror incident that's just happened while we're on air, be it in this country or abroad. I've seen how quickly they, you know, pull up resources and, and, and the whole show gets torn up and cracks on, you and, know, In such a calm way as well. Yeah, in such a calm way. And to, as I say, to navigate um, this current situation that they have, I think, is fantastic. And and even Piers would say, who'd have thought he'd be the poster boy for a pandemic, alongside Dr Hillary, of, of course, course, as well, that he would end up being the voice of a nation and calling the government, along with Susanna, the government to account for not pitching up on our show and answering the questions from the people who voted for them in the first place. Richard, you've told so many fascinating stories already, but in each of these episodes of Good Old Natter, I always ask the guest to give me a little-known fact about themselves, which perhaps most people don't already know. Oof. So do you have one that you can share? Oh my goodness me, a little-known fact. It can be as random or quirky as you like. I still have my collection of Smurfs. Smurfs? Yeah. Not the Smurfs used to collect like McDonald's Happy Meals. No, they were, they were, before, back in the day, young man, we used <laughs> to have to get them with petrol at national garages. Really? Um, I, have, I have about 120 of the Blue Blighters. I still have them in my loft. And I was invited to be the UK voice of Nosy Smurf in Smurfs The Lost Village. Is that with Katy Perry? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, obviously, we never met on set because I just voiced my lines in a studio. But I think when I turned up with a collection of 120 Smurfs, because obviously we turned it into a VT for Good Morning Britain as well, even the producer 
on the item who knew me very well. And of course, certainly the powers that be where we went to do the voiceover looked at me askant, I think, and thought, this is a middle-aged man who still has <laughs> his collection of Smurfs in the attic. And to answer your next question, no, they're absolutely not for sale. I was just going to ask, you just can't part with them, no? <laughs> can't part with them. Can't part with them at all. But, you know, at least I got to voice a Smurf. That, that's impressive. I was, I was just thinking, Celebrity Ant- Antiques Roadshow in the future. Yeah, could be, you know I mean, oh, that we could gather. You know, I pray for the day we can gather once again in a sunny field and flog our wares. Let's hope it happens soon. Just finally, Richard, you spoke about milestones earlier in your life. Looking ahead to the future, obviously we can't predict the future, but what do you hope the future will bring? What do you want to do next? What are your dreams and ambitions? I just enjoy the job, mate. I just love working. So for as long as I can work, I've I've had a very, very good outing. You know, I've had a a long old haul. I've, I've been lucky enough to fly around the world and interview people when we could obviously and you know I've had some fantastic adventures I've met everyone from the ordinary to the extraordinary or just ordinary people with extraordinary tales to tell I I feel I do feel incredibly blessed with that and I'm lucky enough to have been around long enough to have worked with a team of people here front of house and um, to the rear as I say who've, who've, who've been fantastic so to have that experience in live telly is great I hope it continues I think every contract is a stay of execution when you get to my age. So hopefully I'm not quite in the shadow of the scaffold yet. And of course, keep adding to your Smurfs collection as well. Yeah, I know. This is the thing, you know, that I mean, there are Smurfs to collect. I think I even I would give myself a little bit of shade if I, I was still collecting them at my age. Um, the collection I have is enough and I will treasure it. But I don't think I'm on the hunt for any more Smurfs soon. Although... Sarah from Press here did give me a Smurf for um, my 50th birthday, which was a Smurf holding a, a suitably expensive bottle of champagne. And, I, and I've got it in my dressing room, as you can Amazing. see here. So, yeah, that little, those little things I see, they please me. They please me. What can I say? Man of simple, simple pleasures. Richard Arnold, thank you for having a good old natter with me. No, my pleasure. Uh, and good old natter anytime, mate. I hope you've enjoyed this very first episode of A Good Old Natter. Huge thanks to Richard Arnold and Peter Dixon, Giles and Bob for my theme music. Stay tuned for future episodes of the podcast, whether it be on Podbean or by subscribing on iTunes. And in the meantime, keep nattering away.